Hello, my name is Jeff and I'm Professional Services Director at ShieldPay. Welcome to the Shieldcast. The Shieldcast is our podcast on which ShieldPay friends, partners and clients come to talk about things that matter to them in our wider industry and anything else worth talking about. In this second series of the Shieldcast, we are turning to the theme of modern law and today's practice of the law. And what does this mean to law firms, lawyers, regulators, legal tech companies, and ultimately, consumers? We've been talking with industry thought leaders in a four-part series that gives an in-depth insight into their views and how the world of law is being shaped through innovation and technology. The practice of the law is a highly regulated industry and rightly so. It lies as a foundation of protecting the rights of the individuals and so needs to be managed in a way that it does that. It is only right therefore to look at the modern lawyer and the practice of the law and the role the law has to play in the world today and what it might look like in years from now through someone that understands legal regulation intimately. On today's Shieldcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming Crispin Passmore. Welcome Crispin. Hi, good to be here. Crispin has more than 25 years experience in the legal market. He is founder and principal of Passmore Consulting. He works with a select group of high profile legal businesses and law firms in the UK and the US, offering strategic advice to boards, CEOs and general counsel. Previously, Crispin was an executive director at the Solicitors Regulation Authority, where he led regulatory reform program, including sanctioning of multidisciplinary practices, freedom for lawyers to work in more flexible models of delivery and shorter and more flexible set of standards and regulation. The perfect person to come and talk to us about this. So a great pleasure to have you on the Shieldcast today and I look forward to our conversation. It's really good to be here. It's an interesting topic. And I think when we're thinking about you know, how the economy recovers from the pandemic, uh, regulation is going to be a key part of how we think about moving the economy forward. So it's good timing. I agree. And, and, and you know, you're your timings are, are always a very important thing. And your recent blog summarising Professor Mason's review of, of the legal service regulation was, I guess, quite useful for me as a starting point on looking at this topic. Uh, so I'd encourage listeners to, to look at it in due course. But one of the things that you draw out, which I think is something that really is quite fascinating to me, at least, is the concept of institutional regulation um, and looking at the rules of the game and how that how that works really in practice. Yeah, I think the, the thing is often when, when you get geeks like me talking about regulation, they just look at the rules that the regulator puts in place and the legislation that Parliament has put in place around that regulation. But really, if we want to understand what really modifies behaviour in a market, we need to look much more widely than that. And that modification of behaviour, control of behaviour, is what regulation is all about, really. So, yeah, when I think about regulation, I think about all of the institutions, soft and hard, that affect the way that individuals and businesses and customers and potential customers all act within the market. And that might be the context that comes from other law, consumer and competition law, but it might also be cultural issues, cultural norms amongst professionals, behavioural norms amongst individual consumers and business consumers and all of those things really matter if we're going to think about how to regulate and what regulation is effective or, or not effective. Yeah, I think that's one of the, I guess, the difficult things is that you look at the regulator and the regulator's goal is really the consumer protection, yet it has this quasi sort of role in lots of other things. And one of the difficulties are on the one side, the SRA is there or the legal regulators or regulators generally is there to protect the consumer, but at the same time, it needs to make sure that it doesn't annoy the body that it regulates at the same time, because otherwise they those two things keep coming at odds against each other. Yeah, I'd go wider than say it's there to protect the consumer. I think you regulate in the public interest and the public interest isn't the same as the interest of any individual consumers or the body of consumers that exist at the moment. The public interest is a wider thing. It's all of the people 
that could benefit from legal services in a very broad definition of legal services. But it's also a public interest in a properly functioning and a properly behaving legal market and justice system. So there's a public interest in powerful law firms and powerful clients behaving ethically and not misusing the justice system to intimidate people or to do things that there's you know general consensus shouldn't happen. So yeah, that's really why we're interested in powerful clients and powerful law firms as much as the consumer interest in, in legal businesses and retail legal services. I mean, and that's one of the, the main aspects, isn't it? The powerful seem to, to have a lot and the, the not so powerful don't have that much. So that public interest point is really for, for the regulator to a certain extent, open up the legal market to access to everyone. It's their sort of, yeah. their role, their representation when they need it or early enough. So you know, it's just too expensive, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think back to research that I commissioned, you know, 15, 20 years ago, looking at patterns of legal need and the scale of legal need amongst ordinary members of the public, ordinary citizens, and it's huge. And that sort of work has been replicated time and time again in the UK, but across multiple other jurisdictions as well. And the patterns are very similar. And the gap between those needs and what the legal market and the legal profession delivers is again consistently and persistently huge. And I think the debate that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years to think about regulation in the context of that huge gap in access to justice, access to legal services, is really significant. And perhaps in the last seven or eight years, that being focused on small businesses as well, that are often very similar to individuals, and they just don't get access to the legal services that they need. And if a market's not meeting the needs of vast numbers of people, well, we need to change that market. Okay. I mean, it's, it's interesting, the access point, I think it's been become even more real in this COVID-19 situation, right, where where you're seeing the actual physical access to the law firm, even for those that can, is changing on its head. So, you know, there are, you know, there's businesses that, that previously a law firm would, you know, have very stringent rules and regulations around how they would onboard people, how they would operate yeah. in a certain way. And now that model's been turned upside down overnight. You know, that legal innovation has happened as a, as a result of this pandemic, where digital onboarding has become more real and more accessible to people. The quality of the remote advice to allow people who can't travel to places is, is going to be a detriment to, to smaller legal practices. But will that be a good thing for the for the consumer, for the public interest? It's going to be quite interesting to see how that, how that pans out. I, I think it's really interesting that we all know change happens when there's a burning platform and this has created a burning platform. But it just shows how hard it is to get change to happen in the legal market because law firms and lawyers have been so successful, so profitable over many, many years that there's not much of an incentive for them to change individually or collectively at individual or, or, or firm level. And the pandemic has blown a hole in that, hasn't it? And not just in law firms, but in how general counsel buy legal services, how individuals get wills written, but how the courts are operating as well. And, and lots of organisations have delivered three or four years worth of change in three or four weeks at the start of this, how well it sticks and whether or not they can refine it to make it not just a sticking plaster, but a, you know, a great way of working for the future we'll see i think there's lots to work through yet before we really know how to do remote working properly and remote delivery of legal services properly uh, rather than just making it work in this situation i mean you, your point of so much happening so quickly is i mean so real i mean if we look at the legal news during the pandemic it's probably one of the most exciting innovative periods that at least i can remember from looking at it you know you have the online courts that have happened over this period you have recently the the land registry accepting e-signed mortgage deeds you're having people have to move to uh, virtual cloud computing for most law firms and all of these things that, and, and then you, and then you see the innovative businesses like Fairwill uh, raise 
huge amounts of money for something that is specific to this time that we sit in. I imagine that probably helped them that everyone's buying wills now um, as COVID-19 or made it real. But, you know, fascinating to see all of that happen. It is, isn't it? And lots of these things that have changed that you've mentioned are things that powerful individuals within the legal market, whether they're judges, senior lawyers, owners of businesses, have resisted and told us that it couldn't be done or that there were huge risks to it or, you know, it was dangerous to move in this direction because we had to be concerned about, you know, unintended consequences. It just brings me back to that's what professions always say when they're confronted with change. And we see that with the Law Society in England and Wales. It responds to every change with now's not the time and what about unintended consequences? And actually, when forced to change to make businesses survive, there are ways of doing this and there are ways of learning as you go that look after the public, look after lawyers, look after businesses and make the market work more effectively. We need to make sure regulation helps and supports that and supports that innovation and gets out the way a lot more because often lack of confidence about what regulators think harms innovation at these times and other times. Well, that's a, a, a nice sort of lead into are the regulators doing enough to enable that? I mean, uh, I think that the frameworks are, are there in a large part for a lot of these things. I guess it's the, the practice of it. In your role at the SRA and previous, I mean, we had a, a very great where our relationship began was thanks to our you know, interaction around what we were trying to do around third party managed accounts and shield pay. And, you know, I have to say that whilst you were there and then subsequently the SRA have been very supportive of these kind of initiatives. Do you think that the regulators could go much further? The FCA has a sandbox, uh, other regulators have things, and the SRA now does to a certain extent as well. But do you think that they could do more to actually to give those kind of uh, platforms for startups and other businesses to actually breach into the market? Because it's difficult to get into a legal market. Yeah, I think they have to do more and it takes time. And and it's interesting to think about what works and what doesn't and why different things work in different sectors. So the sandbox in financial services has been crucial because they regulate every product in detail and they regulate every service line in real detail. So it's really hard to innovate within their regulatory framework that goes to thousands of pages across their rule book. You know, we already don't regulate lawyers in that way. We don't need a sandbox for lots of things because the rules of the SRA and the legislation behind it doesn't limit what people can do. So why doesn't it happen? Well, that goes to the wider view of regulation. It's cultural. There's a set of norms that exist within the legal profession and within law firms that stop innovation. So my experience when we started SRA Innovate and the sorts of things people came to talk to us about within that sandbox and about innovation more generally was most of the things that people wanted to do do and wanted permission to do, they didn't need the SRA's permission. They'd been able to do that even before the Legal Services Act was passed. Yeah, And that is such a common story. And that's not because of the regulator, but the regulator's got a responsibility to tackle it. So I would urge the SRA, the Legal Services Board, government, as it thinks about regulation in the future of it, to think about the cultural norms as well. And what can it do to break those cultural norms, to put innovation at the heart of the legal market? When looking at the legal sector, it's often former lawyers who are involved in trying to innovate within the legal sector and lawyers are sort of shackled by their own cultural upbringing, I guess, within the legal sphere, where if it's not explicitly stated that I can do this, I must not be able to do it rather than actually going, well, it's, it's open unless there's a rule that says against it. And it's it's a, it's a cultural mind shift. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? It's almost as if they don't understand the common law, um, which is quite remarkable, <laughs> yeah. quite a remarkable thing to be saying about our lawyers. But you're right. And I think one of the things we tried to do with the new code of conduct was to shift away 
from a permissions-based approach, telling lawyers how they can practice to get to one where you can do anything that the law allows unless the SRA has either constrained it or stopped it. But that is a charter for business people and innovators rather than for regulators to tell solicitors, you do this and you do that. Yeah, when I watch regulators around the world, so many of them are trying to do a top-down approach to innovation where they give permission for particular technologies and particular new ways of delivering services or particular educational models. It just doesn't work because regulators are always behind innovators in the market. You have to get out of the way as a regulator. That's an interesting notion because as you know, a legal tech, fintech business trying to break into the legal market, one of those challenges is what does DSRA think about it when you get asked a lot or what does the regulator think about it? One of the things that I've been a proponent for, but it kind of goes at odds with what you're saying was could DSRA not permission certain or endorse certain providers or regulators endorse certain things? And, and I mean, no regulator can do that, but it'd be interesting to know, to have a bit more of your thoughts on that concept. So it's always tempting and it's tempting to solve any particular problem with the one thing that a regulator can do, which is write a rule. So it can write a rule saying you can use shield pay or you can use cloud-based computing, but it usually doesn't survive three more months of innovation because somebody will come along and do something slightly different. And if you give permission to one model, that's good. That model will operate, but it usually then leads to somebody else developing another model that's slightly different. And lawyers will then say, well, hang on, this isn't the same. So we probably didn't want to use that one. So if you start to give permission to individual innovations, you usually end up with a very short burst of innovation and a serious constraint on innovation thereafter. It is much better to play for the long game and change the culture. External ownership of law firms, external investment, non-lawyer partners, changing education and training, all of those things are bringing people from different cultures into decision-making positions within senior legal businesses. And that's what's going to change this. You know, we need to say traditional law firms, well, don't change if you don't want to, because there's other businesses will do this. You know, that's how markets evolve and some take risk and some some don't and both of them sometimes pay off you know that's how our economy runs no absolutely in a world where there is a, a an increasing critique of experts as such and where the, the opinions of experts are being, being discarded where do you see the next sort of 10 years or so of, of innovation going in that respect do you think lawyers will still be doing all of the aspects of a lawyer or will they become far more specialized into reserved legal activity versus unreserved legal activities for example how will that pan out do you so, think? so I, I think markets as they mature tend to polarize and if we look look at most of the legal services that traditional law firms deliver, I think this is a, you know, a very broad generalisation, but I think lawyers overcharge for basic legal advice. Um, routine legal services. And I think they undercharge for serious expert advice. I can almost feel everyone shouting at me for even saying that and reminding me that everything a lawyer does is seriously specialist and real expert. But it's not really what the customer wants. What customers most of the time want is basic legal advice that's proportionate to how they care about the issue. They don't want to know what the Supreme Court would think on a tenancy for their child at university. They just want to know whether or not they'll get their deposit (laughs) back at the end of 12 months' time. So you know, as the market matures, I suspect that technology, regulatory reform, innovation, all of these things will drive further polarisation and we will see uh, more elite 
lawyers making huge amounts of money, but we will also see the price of routine legal services fall. Now, that doesn't mean lawyers get paid less. It means we change the delivery model. It means more use of technology, more use of people that are qualified in things other than law working alongside. So I think the model changed. I'm happy to predict there'll be more lawyers in 10 and 20 years' time. Every change we've seen over the last 50, 60 years, the profession has said this could be the end of solicitors. But we've increased the number of solicitors in England and Wales every year since 1960. I don't think that this is going to stop that. So, yeah, it's a good time to be a lawyer and it's a good career to move into. Well, that's you know why, why I chose to move down that career path back in the day. But it is an interesting one around the the, the training of lawyers or the future lawyers to be, right? Where you have uh, the traditional law firm model and the law in itself, particularly in the UK where it's you know common law and learned by precedent and, and so on, where you have this go through all the hard yards of you know redlining documents or, or paginating documents as part of your rite of passage to get to the next level um, in these hierarchies of pyramid-shaped law firm. And I guess one of the concerns that always are there is that will the next generation lawyers have all of those skills and have learned all of those scars through that process. Well, I hope they don't have to, because I think they'll learn it some other way. But I guess yeah, that's a good and, term. And, and isn't it odd that we've turned into a virtue the fact that law firms aren't very good at selecting which law graduates are going to make the very best lawyers. So they recruit lots of them and winnow them out over 10 years and then expect their clients to pay £400 an hour for the privilege of people that didn't quite cut it. So as the models change, then it will be harder for those big firms to train the same number in the same sort of way but there'll be other ways for them to train some of the new entrants to training you know more of the alternative providers and the large professional services firms are now looking at using education reform in, in the legal profession here in England and Wales to start to train a new breed of lawyer built for you know a tech enabled world built for a collaborative world with other professions built for a, a business approach to law a service approach to law so you know there's going to be new opportunities lawyers just need to think what bit of the market do they need to be in? So we might see not just a polarisation, but a fragmentation about individual lawyer skills as well. Hesitate to say specialisation because I think lawyers are over-specialised at the moment or over-qualified for most of what they do. If you're going to spend your life doing personal injury work, uh, routine road traffic accidents, or you can spend your life supporting the technology on will writing, you don't actually need to learn about criminal law or all sorts of other issues. It might make you slightly better, but the clients shouldn't need it. We shouldn't educate mm. people simply to be broad legal administrators, which is where the, the solicitor qualification comes from. It needs really radical rethinking for the next 25 years. That's really interesting. And I think looking now at where the UK sits in comparison to the rest of the world, so you get to, to go and talk to regulators elsewhere. I think all of that we're saying now is, you know, some of the the role of the lawyer is not the same as it used to be. It will change because it will be service and etc. in different ways. But there is the prestige of the lawyer or the status of a lawyer, right, from a lawyer's perspective that is far more protected in other countries than it is here in the UK to a certain extent. Do you think that that is true, one? Uh, and two, how does that effect of the difference in the role impact the way that the legal practice is done elsewhere? So I think we hold the law in really high regard in, in the UK and we hold lawyers that really deal with complex law and complex legal issues, whatever the field, whether it's commercial, criminal, civil, whatever it is, family work, we hold them in really high regard. But I think we let the legal profession off the hook a little bit. And, and where you started about the importance of law to the economy, to society, the rule of law, all of those things, lawyers never tire of telling me that they're dealing with things that really are at the heart of the economy and the heart of people's rights and all of that stuff. Well, most lawyers aren't. Most lawyers are never anywhere near 
of that stuff. What they do is routine legal administration and we don't need five years of qualification and we don't need to work in firms with 40% margins to get that routine legal work. And clients are waking up to that as they see people like Fairwill that you mentioned or Elevate, Axiom, United Lex. Yeah, all of these different businesses are, are delivering normal business solutions to the problems that lawyers are one of the solutions to. Yeah, so are lawyers special? Well, they tell me they are, but not many of their customers <laughs> tell me they are. Uh, you asked also, also, Jeff, about other countries. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's really interesting. I think our lawyers are held in high regard here as they are around the rest of the world. They're not given the, quite the same commercial protection as they are in the US, for example, with the unauthorised practice of law and really tight regulatory restrictions on who, who can deliver legal services. But that's only in name. I, yeah, if you actually look in the US and you look at the growth of some of the businesses I've just mentioned, uh, Elevate, Axiom, United Lex, LegalZoom, Rocket Lawyer, these are huge, huge businesses delivering solutions to what lawyers think are legal problems and clients think are just problems. And they've been built in the US despite the unauthorised practice of law. So, you know, lesson there is protectionism doesn't work. Capital seeps through the gaps and innovation finds a way ridiculous regulation. So the competition is there across the US with a restrictive market, just as it is here in the UK with a more open market. That's fascinating because in the, the regulators in the US are very different to the ones here in the rest of the world. And so they are quasi, you know, trade bodies as well, to a certain extent, representing their, the profession as such in, in that way. And do you think it is actually uh, the regulators there actually need to wake up? Because otherwise, if they don't adapt, don't do anything, don't, don't try and move along with the times, as I think, begin with you and also the rest of the team at the SRA are, are really trying trying to at least do so, that they might get full behind and then you'll get that Uberization moment of legal services to a certain extent. I, I, I was asked this question on a platform in Germany 10 years ago, you know, framed as, given all that you said, what do you think we should do here in Germany? And I said, you should carry on with the restrictive market. It's great for London law firms and it's great for London as the heart of the <laughs> legal community. Yeah, of course they need to wake up and, and see the world's changing. I think luckily they are in the US. So this month in August, uh, Utah and Arizona will both approve, I expect, new rules that allow regulatory sandboxes, fee sharing, uh, non-lawyer ownership into those two markets. Uh, with imagination, even though it's a state-based system, with a little bit of imagination, uh, you can deliver across the whole of the US from there. With a little bit more imagination, you don't even need to worry about US regulation. You can deliver to US citizens and US clients from your London ABS. You know, there is always a way around it. And yeah, regulators that don't evolve become irrelevant. And we just need to look around the city of London and look at the huge number of old guild buildings and old guilds that exist to know what happens to professions and trades that, that <laughs> don't open up and modernise. Yeah, who knows what a Mercer was? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to look it up and, uh, and, and yeah. let you know, Chris. I think there's something to do with cloth. Well, good. I've learned something new at least today. <laughs> I think we've had a which is very interesting 101 on legal regulation and innovation, I think, for, for, for the listeners. And, and what of the questions I like to ask people that I that I interview on this podcast is what has been I guess the most formative and development piece of their career. So uh, could you, you tell us, Crispin, what has been the uh, apart from meeting me, obviously the most uh, you know important part of your of your last twenty five years in the legal industry? What have been for you that formative part or that? Uh, the most formative part for me uh, com comes from the fact that I'm not a lawyer. I've been in the legal market most of my career, but I'm not a lawyer and I've never been a lawyer. I've never wanted to be a lawyer. Formative experience was actually twenty one years 
years old and being sacked from a job for issues related to a trade union and discovering how hard it was to just solve the problem of unfair treatment at work. So I didn't think I had a legal problem. I think I had an employment problem, a work problem. Trade union was hopeless. The lawyers were expensive. Legal aid was inflexible. And I guess came to the view that ordinary people didn't have access to the legal services they needed just to live their ordinary lives. And I guess 30 years on, I'm still trying to find the lever you pull to make it easy to solve that particular problem. The more I've gone through my career, I've realised that those levers are really widely dispersed and are cultural, behavioural, rather than simply structural. Well, I mean, that's great to hear and, um, and and quite inspiring, Crispin. So all that's left for me to say really is, well, thank you very much for what's been a really enjoyable conversation on, across many different topics. And I look forward to chatting with you in, in the next year, 10 years, to see what actually happens. Thanks very much. I'm sure we'll be fighting the same issues in 10 years' time, but innovators are driving things forward, luckily. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Crispin. Bye. Yes, bye. We worked hard for putting this together and hope that you have found this interesting. If you like this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss the next one. We would also, of course, be grateful if you could give us a good rating and share it with your friends or colleagues. If you would like to get in contact and provide some positive criticism, or you would like to find out more about the services ShieldPay has to offer, please head over to ShieldPay.com where you'll find a Contact Us page and lots of useful additional resources. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now.